My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of The Lead Lag Report. Joining me today are Paul Barron. Paul, first time you and I are chatting, introduce yourself to me and to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? What have you done throughout your career? What are you doing currently? Yeah. So, Ming, I think most most people, at least on Twitter, probably know us for our YouTube channel, which is just Paul Barron Network. And my background in tech has been spanning about almost, gosh, almost three decades now. So I came out of I came out of school, went to work for Microsoft, and my background is computer science. Fell into the media business accidentally when working with some major retailers and spent the last almost two decades now building media companies. And uh, PBN, which is one of our, our core products, is uh, probably one of the, the larger ones. Uh, of course, it focuses on AI, tech, blockchain, uh, and really where the markets are going traditionally. Uh, so that's my background in, in a nutshell. And you started that channel uh, not too long ago. It looks like the first video was around two years ago. What what was the impetus to to focus on that? Well, actually, the YouTube channel was started a decade ago. And the tech focus started about two, two and a half years ago. And really what was happening, we've been a company that has built SaaS products in the basically big data arena around consumer sentiment. We were mostly working in the space around major brand. So we were looking at consumer data for a lot of Fortune 500 brands. So we built a solution for that. Then we ingest, started ingesting some APIs from different data sources. And one of them was crypto. And with that, the amount of data that was available to us to start to analyze started to give us some insights to what was happening in the markets. And really, that was the uh, the birth of TechPath, which is the show on PBN. How was the uh, subscriber growth? Has it been fairly consistent over the last decade, or yeah, when you when you really focus, especially on the crypto side, given the timing of that, did things really go vertical there? We had we had a little bit of a run during that a very short period of time in 2021 when Bitcoin hit its all time high at that point. So there was a, a little bit of a run there. But in reality, it has been a grind. My background in media and building tech products, I understand that. So it, for us, it wasn't it wasn't anything new to to have to grind it out. I, I when people say, "Oh man, you guys are doing so great," we're an overnight sensation over ten years. Yeah, and and I give you a, a tremendous amount of credit. I think a lot of people think that you can just go viral and and suddenly people find you on YouTube and you get all these subscribers and you have all this monetization capability. But I see it myself. I think YouTube is probably the hardest of the social media networks to to grow on by far. Yeah, by far. It's uh, it's a grind, and and you have to be. Listen, there are viral hits out there for sure, but they're literally one in fifty million if you look at the amount of YouTubers. But I think the platform itself just has really to blossom for for finance. But more importantly, it's the demographic that works so well with both YouTube. TikTok is starting to move a little bit and some other social platforms. Obviously, Twitter here with what's happening on Spaces is pretty pretty exciting as well. We'll, we'll get into the meat and potatoes around AI, blockchain, and Bitcoin, but I, I want to keep going around this YouTube side because I think it's, it's fascinating. The demographics part is, is interesting. I read some somewhere that Outside of X, YouTube is the most trafficked website when it comes to investing and looking at things related to stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, and crypto. And then it's largely male, right? Which also skews yeah. more the investment side. How how has the the algorithm over time either hurt or benefited your own growth? Because I think anybody that's trying to grow on YouTube has that challenge of trying to trying to 
figure out how to game the system and then the, the rules change. Yeah. Well, I think we have a secret weapon and it's the SaaS product that we've built. And because it's a data ingestion tool that basically looks at sentiment, it uses an algorithm that basically is an NLP model, data model that looks at, you know, certain conversation queries that give us a little bit more insight as to what's working. Because sometimes, usually because it's so massive, it's difficult to really find the trend that's actually happened versus on Twitter. Twitter has its own built-in algorithm that builds that trend cycle that you see in your trending category. YouTube, though it does that, it's so uh, focused in on the user behavior. So what we've done is with our tool, which is actually a SaaS product we call the Market Sentiment Index. And what we've done is we've also looked at data from YouTube, including a lot of the users. So we track about 500 finance channels and we basically ingest content, a lot of the comments, et cetera. And then we pull from within that to find what channels are coming to the top and what topics are coming to the top. And with that, then we put a full research team in play to dive in deep on different narratives that might be uh, brewing. So for us, I think it's been content selection, uh, which again, as I said, is, is a we have a little bit of a cheat code with that just because of the product that we've been building for almost almost nine years now. Using that as as a uh, indicator is is interesting, obviously, in terms of yeah. Getting I mean, you, you a good example. If you look at the top crypto channels, we'll go with Corn Bureau, Altcoin Daily. They're very easy to identify and they're very easy to model against. But the the videos that in some cases break out that go ab- above six figures typically are happening on channels that are not those channels. Those channels have, you know, spent, you know, quite some time over two or three bull runs to build. So they have, a, they have an innate audience that um, brings them into that cycle. I don't know what their percentage is in terms of returning viewers, but we analyze all that kind of stuff. But what we found is that within this tool set, it starts to open up a lot of opportunities for us to dive in a little deeper on projects and investment strategies and things that are happening within the crypto and AI space, blockchain space, that are not normally the general narrative. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But we feel that the future of that is going to be identifying these early narratives, much like if you think about stocks and investing in general. If you look at any analyst out there, that's exactly what they're doing. Our job has just been to do it in a completely different model and different way than has been traditional in the past. When did AI pop up in that as far as just other videos that it's like, all right, now the time to start talking about this? So, yeah, okay. So I think the it's the use of some of the AI models that will be integrated into some of the tech that will eventually fall into blockchain. But I'm not sure if you if I understand your question. When did well, it pop did, up in, in, in the landscape? No, no, we use. No, no, going back to that point about content selection, right? So, so oh, the yeah. idea is that if, if, if you're seeing at the periphery that certain videos are getting more and more traction, yeah. and that's before the mainstream media is catching on to it, then there's a, there's, a, there's a potential buy signal there, right, for anybody that's actually publicly investing. Yep. So the way that we do it is we use AI in our own tool set to basically bounce off of our NLP data. And with our NLP data, we'll which is just a base algorithm. It's looking at several keywords and certain indicators that tell us it's a positive, neutral, negative sentiment. And then we'll bounce that off of AI, some of the models that are out there, and we'll use various models 
to determine, all right, do we have something here or not kind of thing. And this is something that has started to really, we've just started to explore it over the last year and a half. And it's, I think it's now starting to pay a little bit of dividends for us. It's more right than wrong. So at least we're above that 50% range. Doesn't mean that it picks winners. It just means us, it, it can identify trends once we feed the, remember AI is just as good as its data. So once we feed it the data, then it analyzes that against other sources. And then it gives us kind of a, uh, a little bit of a reference result that that helps us say, okay, that's a that's a potential there, right? And, and actually, where I'm trying to go with that, I'll maybe be more specific. Is, is let's say it's the example of Nvidia, right? Mm-hmm. Before that yep. spike up, right? Everyone talked about AI after Nvidia spiked up, but AI had been a thing before that, right? So, so is there like a lead time, right, in terms of that data, and then when it starts to get more and more of a narrative in the mainstream media? Yeah, I think it does. Ident- it does help identify based on the amount of data that you ingest into it. When we flow a lot of what we're... Because right now we track about 500 uh, blockchain projects. Uh, we could expand on that, but just the cost to ingest that much data is not... It's not cost prohibitive, um, or it is cost prohibitive. And uh, what we have found, though, is that when we're starting to utilize our tool set with certain projects. Most of the narrative that comes in from just our basic SaaS product, that will we'll flow it over into there. And in some cases, it's it's pretty good, but it still has a long, long way to go. It's definitely in the early stages. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Where are we in terms of investment flows and sentiment when it comes to blockchain? I think a lot of people are very excited around the Bitcoin ETF. And maybe at the periphery, you're starting to see some money flowing back into things outside of Bitcoin. But where are we in that broader trend? We take it uh, a little different because we're exposed to two areas that most people are not exposed to in terms of analysis. One is that we, of course, have the SaaS component to where we can bounce ideas and, and trends that we see happening off of in terms of a tech side. But the other is our exposure to uh, business utility. So we've been in, we run multiple media companies. Uh, I have three different variations. We have a tech, uh, kind of a tech sector, a food sector, hospitality sector. And those have given us access to some of the biggest brands out there. So we are privy. In, in many cases, either I set on as advisory or I work as a consultant in some cases with some of these bigger brands. So we get a chance to see a, a little bit behind the kimono in the sense of where their direction is going. So what we're watching is, is this sub-context of what's happening in the market. Bitcoin, of course, is the leading and it will be one of the, the catalysts that help drive these other blockchain projects. But I think utility is going to be a huge component for 24 and 5 of how blockchain is going to be utilized, which means it's going to start to open up a lot more of these other projects 
in the marketplace. And a lot of people who already recognize this, whether you're a Solana investor, an AVAX investor, or you're into all the various layers of blockchain, we're going to start to see a lot more utility used. And I think it's going to open some people's minds where the market's going. Do you think we DM saying one of the topics that you want us to go through is the magnificent seven of blockchain? Mm-hmm. And I think oh, whenever I hear that, I always think, okay, so you're always going to have a list of, of companies or stocks that will be the next leaders, but obviously the composition changes, right, over time. What are, what are some of the, when you think magnificent seven, first of all, what are we talking about when it comes to blockchain? We talk about public companies, private companies, and what are some of those more interesting plays there? Well, the, there's going to be a, a layer of these that circulate around the blockchain narratives is what we refer to them as. And if you look at the ETH narrative, the Ethereum narrative, and what that means in terms of smart contracts, there's going to be a whole slew of companies that start to migrate into the strategies that Ethereum represent. And because of, because of that, I think you're going to see a lot of publicly traded companies start to do some very interesting things possibly this year, definitely in 25, um, that will also align with the, the ETH narrative. So those are the ones that we're watching. Anybody that is starting to make moves in this direction, good example, Visa just launched uh, a huge initiative on this today. So they just did a huge release on a blockchain narrative that they're in the midst of. And it's one that they've been testing for a bit. Along with that, there's all sorts of companies in the CPG side, which is consumer packaged goods which is things like companies like Dorito, Unilever, et cetera, that have already gone in this direction, then the big food brands. So anybody that is starting to get it, it's, it's if you could go back in, in 2000, I was a young engineer in Silicon Valley and I was working for Microsoft and uh, Steve Ballmer was my boss. I don't know if you guys know who Steve Ballmer is, but he basically was the guy who eventually took over from Bill Gates. And when we were really building a lot of the internet was just exploding at that time. And this was 97 to 2000, right before the dot bomb. And what happened is if you could go back in time and look at the companies that figured it out, that understood the future of where the internet was going and was able to align against it, you would have Amazons, the oracles of the world, the SaaS products that we've seen from, you name it, as well as, because remember, this is pre-social. So a lot of the Magnificent Seven that exist today were not, were not even around back then. So. I think that's the stage we're in right now is being able to pick those winners. The other narrative that is going to be huge is going to be Solana. I think that's going to fall into the payments architecture. So a lot is going to start flowing around that area. And then the other narrative that I like is what's happening with Avalanche because of their subnet architecture and how brands are going to be, and I say brands in general, businesses of all types that are going to start to experiment with blockchain are going to be looking to build on their own. And Avalanche has been able to go that direction. The other narrative, I think, which is one that's really yet to be revealed, is the one, what we call the TNS narrative, which is the next Solana. Because of their capability of speed, flexibility, and what what that blockchain represents, I think it's going to open up an opportunity for maybe a new tech company to become something, possibly someone that's already doing something in the space uh, overall. And then we have a few others. Happy to get into those if, if you want to explore some. Yeah, you yeah, know, please. Uh, this, this is an area that I don't know too much about. I see a few people in the audience that I know for sure track this very closely. So uh, continue to riff on that. So uh, others, of course, is going to fall into the AI and the uh, cloud compute space. 
Some will look at the storage capacity, think about Filecoin, Arweave, et cetera, those architectures. But I'm, I'm looking more in the area of render and what their capability is going to be, especially as it relates to things like Vision Pro, which is Apple and their efforts on VR and AR. Uh, but also Meta, if you just think about where Meta has come, big news in Meta this week was there is a new technology layer that allows pretty much any game to be ported into our VR. That has yet to really explode, but yet at the same time, Meta was the number one downloaded app during the holiday season here just two weeks ago. Reason being, you know, the MetaQuest 3 and that product and cost of uh, hardware is going to get cheaper. As Apple enters the space, it's also going to open up some opportunities for traditional companies in the tech space that I think will uh, be in this. If you think about Matterport and what they did for real estate, companies of that nature also are going to flow into these blockchain uh, components, especially around cloud compute. Beam is going to be, I think, one of the narratives around gaming. Continued, this is a, a product or a project that's powered by a project called Merit Circle, which is a DAO. And these guys are building gaming networks and they've started to look at the potential there around cross-chain capabilities and this coming in from Avalanche and what they're doing with Immutable X, all of these I think will play into some very interesting strategies for the gaming industry. Even though the gaming industry has been very reluctant to leap into Web3, a handful of the CEOs, including the Roblox CEO, have started to identify that this is a, a potential. And I think there is going to be a trigger that occurs in 2024 by a major brand. And I won't say who, but there, there's a couple of major brands out there that are in the, the waning hours of final testing to explode, I think, onto the scene with NFTs that will be integrated to brand IP. And once that the rest of Fortune 500s see how this is done, Every one of these Fortune 500s are going to be, it's going to be a race to, to the front of the line, much like what it was in 2000 when we started to see the growth of, of the real internet start to move. So that's going to be a big one. Flow is another one. They've done some very interesting things with Dapper Labs, where that might go in terms of brand IP and its own ecosystem. If you think about decentralization around digital assets and tokenization of some of these things are going to be pretty, uh, pretty interesting to watch. Flow is, uh, though it's a little bit more on the, the lower layer. So what I look at is when we analyze each one of these blockchains, it has a ripple effect into traditional business, whether that's a Fortune 500 or a major industry like food, which is a trillion dollar industry in the US, five trillion globally, and the impact of what that might have. And then you apply things like gaming because of the demographic impact and influence it's going to have. And every brand out there, I think, is going to start to connect the dots between those two things. And that is going to be exciting. I think the next 10 years are, are really much like it was between 2000 and 2010 when we really saw all the titans that we know today that run the, the, run the gambit on the S&P 500. Those, they were kids <laughs> during that time. So very interesting uh, stuff for sure. And then you've got projects that are in the Ethereum uh, virtual machine space, EVMs that are going to enable cross-compatibility, both in the gaming uh, function, but also within uh, functionality within brand IP, which will become a thing. You don't recognize any of that technology today on the internet, Web2, because nobody cares about it. But it runs everything that's happening under your browser, under your banking, 
under your social media. All of that technology essentially is what's happening right now in Web3. So we're watching it uh, very closely. So Neon EVM is one that I'm, I'm very intrigued with because of that. Uh, then you get into the DEXs, which I think is really going to be a, a very interesting area if it doesn't get challenged with regulatory scenarios. Because once you get into the DEXs and, and DeFi, it really changes the monetary system in a huge, huge way. And because of the massive shift in demographics that we are facing right now in society, we are at an area in which I believe might be the tipping point. And I've watched this for about the last 10 years. And I kept thinking that the millennials would be the tipping point, but I wasn't quite sure with obviously the size of that demographic. But I think now it's probably going to lean more to the Gen Z. And because of that and their affinity toward gaming, I think we're going to see some pretty interesting things in the decentralized exchanges and DeFi. So gaming, of course, is a no-brainer. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Does the does the cost of capital throw things off at all in terms of path or acceleration or deceleration? When you mentioned NFTs earlier, mm-hmm. my mind immediately went to Board Ape and the, the crazy pricing on some of these yeah. images, right? Which is a function of all the liquidity. Uh, is is the are we out of that speculative phase? And and how does that liquidity dynamic impact some of these projects? Well, I think that it will have an impact, just like it. Liquidity has had impact on markets forever. This is these are physics. This this is something you can't change. But at the same time, the difference with this era of society versus the era that existed in two thousand eight in the last real recession is quite a bit different. Because in two thousand eight, there was no alternative, and now there there actually is an alternative. And for the for the demographic that we're talking about which is going to be the 20-something, 30-something investor in five years. That demographic is completely different. They think differently, they behave differently, and they've proven it time in and time out. So they're in charge of a fairly large liquidity block that I think may change the dynamics of how markets work. And that's something that is, I I don't know that there's a lot of people on Wall Street that are really studying that because they're looking at the traditional themes of how liquidity is is source, but also just the traditional Wall Street mechanisms that reside for active markets. I think that in itself, because of tech, because of what we've seen in these in this cultural shift, which I think is is really the bigger narrative here. It's it's a culture shift that is. I don't know if you guys follow a guy by the name of Yatsu. He is the CEO of a company called Animoca Brands, and he talks a lot about this. And he's he's very tied into this this cultural revolution. And it's much like what you saw in 2007 when Facebook and Twitter came on the scene. And I remember my, I think I started my Twitter account in 2008, but I got a chance to meet with the early team and Ev was actually a friend of mine. And because he was building a podcast platform called Odeo. And at the time, 
nobody really understood what RSS was or what podcasting was. He and I, because I'm a geek at heart, connected at a conference. I learned a little bit more about what Odeo was doing, which eventually became Twitter. Jack Dorsey, of course, took the reins of the three founders. And uh, the rest has been history. But the point is, is that that was a period in time in which we saw a small culture shift starting to occur in social. And I think that that is happening now in finance because of the demographic divide that, that exists today. And that's why you saw what happened with Wall Street Bets. It's, it's not something that I think is out of the mainstream narrative. Yeah, so I'm actually really glad you mentioned the demographic divide. I, I, I have this, this theory around the Bitcoin ETF that it's ETF, the spot side, when, they, when they're all released, that it's not going to be as, as much of a big deal as the hype. And I say that only because of your point about demographics, right? Younger generation yeah, yeah. wants Bitcoin. They want to actually own it, right? Older generation probably doesn't understand Bitcoin as well. Wealth managers, yeah, okay, they can put 1% or 2% and that would drive Bitcoin to you know, millions of dollars. But I think it would be hard for their clients who are you baby boomers who hold the majority of the wealth to, to justify to them, buy this, we're going to buy this Bitcoin ETF in your heavily managed account, right? So the, the demographic part is, is probably really underappreciated. And that divide is, is ultimately, you can even argue, different between the ETF structure versus owning it directly. Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm on the other side of that fence. And, and I'll explain why. Is when you look at demographic divide, and this is the first time we've seen one this massive because there's been, there was a demographic divide between the boomers and, and Gen Z, or excuse me, Gen Y, millennials. Uh, the Gen X, which is the demographic I'm in, we got caught in the middle and we were a small demo. But boomer and millennial, there was a, there was a, a bit of a divide, but it's not near as large as, as the one that is coming at us right now. So, but here's my argument with that. It, and, and again, this just looks at human nature and I'll, I'll use the term Facebook. Prior to Meta, everybody thought that Facebook was a millennial thing. And in reality, it was a boomer thing. The shift started to occur when the incumbents exposed what was capable within Facebook. And what happened was is boomers pretty much took over Facebook. And I think that may happen with the Bitcoin ETFs. It may be your mom's and your grandma's coin that they do have a lot of exposure to wealth and they're just trying to understand what the younger generation is, is doing. And this is their way of possibly attaching to that market. It doesn't mean that it's the correct way, but it means that they're going to fall, I think, into play over time. Now, do I think that the ETF is just going to cause Bitcoin to go at 100K? Probably not. It'll be, it'll have its nice little pump. I think it'll retrace, but I think there will be an intriguing model of marketing that these ETFs do. And over time, it will have the Facebook effect on the boomers. And we'll see more and more people uh, starting to move into that, that market space. I, I love that analogy. Is the implication there then that you also think that over time, because of the ETF structure and the openness of it, that volatility in Bitcoin would be lower on average on a go-forward basis? Um, yes. That, that seems like a big component of this as well. Yeah. I think uh, volatility on Bitcoin starts to get much more neutered uh, in the future years. I'm not a big, and people hate me for this, I'm not a big investor in Bitcoin. I, I, I hold it, but it's not something that I would look at as a volatile product, even though it is very volatile. We just saw the little, you know, uh, <laughs> uh, snafu that happened yesterday that dropped it 
what was it down? I think it wicked down to like 40, almost 40,000. And then what is it trading today? 44. So yeah, that's the 10% moves are in crypto. That's in one day. That's a, that's a normal day. But in if the S&P, that would be, oh, uh, that'd be earth shattering. But my point is, is that I think it gets less volatile. Everybody argues Bitcoin can be used for payments. I just think that's, I look at the data. I look at the science behind it. Lightning Network is not the, in my opinion, is not the solution. The Bitcoiners will hate me for this. If you guys are listening in, don't don't hit me in the comments. But I just don't think it's the solution there. But I do think it is a good store of value. And at some point, provided that we get the proper regulation, it could become as big as gold in terms of, of market cap, for sure. Definitely, as Kevin O'Leary would like to say, the 12th sector of what's happening in finance. So it's got a potential, but I, I'm, I'm a much more aggressive strategist when we look at projects, growth in business, what's really driving it? Uh, gold doesn't drive the growth in the S&P. Gold doesn't drive the growth in GDP. It doesn't drive the growth on the global community or the global economy. But it has a place. And I think Bitcoin will have its place in a very good place, not a bad place. It'll be a great place. But I think there's going to be projects and technology that are going to absolutely just from a growth standpoint, just demolish where, where Bitcoin may go. Let, let's go back to the blockchain side of the d- discussion for a second here and talk about different industries where blockchain is slower to be implemented, but maybe has the most potential. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking maybe real estate or healthcare, pharmaceuticals. Any kind of interesting insights on the progression of blockchain implementation in non-traditional sectors? Yeah, smart contracts, I think, have scratched the surface and started to create a lot of intriguing discussions with a variety of, of industries outside of the traditional consumer-facing or CPG-type industries. Professional services, medical, obviously, will be a big factor just because of the potential there. My wife's a physician. I get a chance to talk to a lot of these high-level administrators that are trying to understand where this technology is going. And uh, I do uh, a seminar twice monthly, and it's mostly business owners and high net worth individuals. And it's mainly just to talk about technology and this shift that's occurring. And all of these, I would say when we started doing those seminars, we were getting like 30, 40 people. These are in person. And now it's in excess of 100 people every time. And these are you know, these are people that run the communities they're in. And all of them, I would say for the most part, are one, they're at least very inquisitive as as to how this could affect their business. But most of them are starting to actually implement strategies. So I think it's just a matter of time before, uh, one, I don't know that the smart contract tech is there completely, even though with this recent move by Visa, I was a bit surprised at the project that they selected but when we started doing deep dives on it, the, the tool sets that they were using, which have been around since I think 2018, which is in, in blockchain years, that's old, was pretty intriguing. So the, the company and the project, I think, is, is going to be one to watch for sure. But I think, yeah, the, the potential here for, for real estate, for medical, for professional services, including the legal system. We're going to see that outside of what we'll most likely see in tokenized digital assets and just tokenized securities, which is already proven, JP Morgan, what they're doing with Onyx. Let's talk about how that all translates into the media and different formats through which information gets uh, yes. public. Yeah. I, I, I'm going to make the assumption that traditional media is not going to be anywhere near as good as you. 
as far as explaining a lot of this stuff. But what's the role of the media in terms of blockchain adoption, projects getting attention, if any? It seems like it, it, it's hard to go mainstream with some of these things because they sound so esoteric and mainstream mm-hmm. media has to be has to cater to the lowest common denominator in terms yeah. of rationale. Yeah, we could have a whole other space on this. The I have a very passionate position on this and only because uh, when I came out of Microsoft, I fell into the media business by accident and I started building websites and I started doing podcasts. My first podcast was in 2007. That was right after Adam Curry and I think it was Dave Weiner created RSS. And the concept of what podcasts would be at that time, I I owned a, a small media company. I ended up merging that media company with a bigger media company. And so I've got a chance to live this. I, I've been in these these editorial rooms. I've been in the the management teams of these big media companies. And the problem that they had was one, understanding what this new media meant. And in, eventually, I ended up selling my own stake in the media business that I merged because the management team did not believe in what podcasting and video would be. Now, granted, this was in 2012. 10 years ago, when podcasting was barely a thing, and video, including YouTube, had, yet, had not yet really become uh, uh, an issue. And Twitter was nowhere near the, the free speech mechanism that it is today. So what I think is going to happen with mainstream media is they're going to continue to get diluted. And unfortunately, I feel like unless we see some majors, and it's possible that we could see this just because of the demographic shift that will occur, in terms of management and key decision makers that will change the way media is done. However, someone uh, is going to come up with a way in, in which a decentralized media mechanism can be implemented. This Now, whether this is a federated model that has been splashed around with Noster and some of that stuff, or if, if Elon pulls you know a rabbit out of the hat with Twitter, who knows? But the point is, is that the media is getting weaker and weaker. Uh, we've already... Uh, shown that in the political arena. And now we're already starting to see how decentralized mechanisms are at work today and will be at work in the next um, election. And I'm not, I won't go into politics, but what I will say is there's some tactics being done today that are, I I don't know if I would say, I I won't say nefarious, but they're just questionable in, in how they can decentralize narratives in a way that can affect masses, millions. And one of the way, if you just look at Vivek, Ramaswamy, one of the presidential, go to, and you could also look at RFK, you could take just those two as business case studies and look at the mechanism in which they're spreading information. They're using podcasts and they're reaching audiences that are much different than what a CNN or a CNBC might reach. So. I think we're at a a very intriguing time in media. CNN's numbers are already in the toilet. We've seen the decline of major mainstream media for quite some time. The departure of Carlson, what he's trying to do there, we'll continue to see that, I think, with major. But the rise of these right and left media organizations that have now become mainstream, what would be considered mainstream, just because of their viewer audience, that's going to be interesting because finance, I think, will be a big one that is yet to been, be uncovered. Bloom, whether it's Bloomberg or it's CNBC or it's another one. If you, even if you look at the small case study that Cheddar 
News did before they sold to a cable outlet. Had had John stayed with that model? I think it was too early, but Cheddar was trying to become the CNBC or the Bloomberg for millennials. And I think there's going to be a company or a project or media company that may be able to crack that code, but I just don't know if it's going to be the ones that you and I go listen to and watch <laughs> every day. So it's a, it's a very interesting time right now, for sure. Yeah, so I first of all, I think the tech is is already in place that could do it. The problem is the the narrative by both the GOP and the Democrats would never allow this to happen. No way. Can, can I can I expand on that a little bit? Because it it it's interesting and uh, no disagreement they wouldn't allow it. But like I would think if you could if you could implement that and then basically everybody you could just vote from their smartphone instead of waiting online, you're probably gonna get uh, an interesting skew on demographics, which might skew toward probably more Democrats than Republicans. So it seems like there might even be maybe an incentive to do it, at least on the left. Well, you could say that from the left-leaning position, it's possible that that could be the narrative, but I think it would be such a high risk for the left to take. I'm not a political analyst, but I, I look at data on just an ongoing basis around what I think is one of the faster-moving categories. And if you were to take that as a subset of in a data sample, I would, I would probably challenge that in the sense that it's too close to call kind of thing. And that to me is a high risk when unfortunately I just, I'm not a believer in the political system. I, I wish that we had one that was truly fair, but we've already seen that there's just, there's just too much weirdness happening in the political system. And there's too many narratives. Come on, guys. Let's just look at how Congress invests. If we just go in and look at the historical investment strategy of Congress and our members of Congress, let's just be honest here. There's a lot of bad things happening that shouldn't be happening. And I guarantee if anybody in the business sector had been doing these kind of things, we wouldn't be walking about around free. These are problems in our society that, and and I think blockchain, though it represents an amazing technology, just much like the internet, the internet um, represents an amazing technology, but we have never really seen implementation of that. Come on, look at the voting mechanisms that we're using right now. They're archaic. I want to go back to that point about the media around weaker and weaker. A lot of this has to do with trust, obviously, but also attention span, right? Yes. And this is something I've, I've tried, I've, I emphasize really a lot over the last several years, but all these studies that show that attention spans are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, which makes it really challenging, I think, for anybody to go beyond a headline because there's so many distractions around us. As these more decentralized forms of media are, are perpetuated, do you worry about that 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 trend of attention spans dropping and what the implication would be then on interpreting what these newer forms of media are actually saying or suggesting? I think that that is a, a very good analysis of where the trend is going. The the position though that that I believe is occurring, and and it's not even a believe. I know it's occurring because we're following it from a data side. And that is, let's just take Amazon and TikTok for a second, okay? Amazon shares, they're dipping slightly. But if you look at where TikTok is moving by dance, they're going to have an e-commerce business that's going to go up to, I think, almost 18 billion in 24. This is a young company, all right? Short-form content, short-form content. The potential for e-commerce there is going to be massive. But I think short-form content is going to be something that it's meant to be, and that is to draw in consumers and viewers, listeners, et cetera, 
into long-form content. And I actually think that the short-form content is the gateway drug to shows like what you're doing, Michael. This is, this is the tool in which they get to sample what Lelag is doing before they commit to listening to an hour-long Twitter space or to 30-minute YouTube video or a podcast. So I think this is actually going to get much more uh, interesting because of short-form content. And that only widens the gap in terms of capabilities by the major and mainstream media. Go look at, we know this because we follow it, but if you just go in and look at all of the mainstream media YouTube accounts, look at their history, go to Social Blade, look at their historical, and then go look at some of the rising stars in media and look at the projected just on, just on Social Blade. Forget real data science, but just Social Blade of where that's going to, and what that's going to look like in five years. You'd be surprised where that's going. So I think short form is going to be just what it needs to be, and that is to try to draw in. So you're training, our society is being trained, I should say, with things like TikTok, Instagram, et cetera. We're going to see more and more of that. So the value and the science behind short form content is going to become more critical. And I think that leads to the potential for long form content when they're ready to make decisions, including a review on a pair of pants, or a review on a stock, a review on an ETF, whatever it might be. Eventually, they'll move from from short to long. I, I, no, no disagreements. I guess where I hesitate there is it's going to be, be going back to AI. It becomes so easy then for anybody to make short-form content that it becomes even more overwhelming. If you thought there were a lot of short-form content before, you're talking about exponentially more just because of the ease with which it can be created using AI. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that in itself will create a, a bit of media spam that we're already starting to see today. We were it was just like an example uh, of this on our own YouTube channel. We had scammers that had made it past YouTube's ad team, and they were implementing a Michael Saylor ad on. They would buy it on our channel, and these are AI generated. So I think those are problems, but. It's much like spam was in 10 years ago. It was a problem that eventually, not still not eradicated. But I think what blockchain will do is it'll start to create a uniqueness around that. If you think about what spam might be, especially on blockchain, and if you think about that in a media context, where it becomes valuable. Now now it gets back to this whole identify identifying of the right target audience. So imagine, Michael, if you could do this with lead lag and... You could say, okay, I want, I want to show, we're going to do with Paul on the show today, and we want to hit the right kind of audience out there. The traditional model for someone is going to be just uh, spray and pray on Twitter ads or whatever it might be, uh, YouTube, other social channels, et cetera, influencers. And that's a spray and pray approach versus if we see blockchain integrate into the space, now you're going to see this delivered via some sort of decentralized mechanism on block on blockchain that is going to be able to target and it's going to target based on behavior that is uh, related to potentially an actual transaction. So this is going to be something that I think for Web3, I, oof, the opportunity is just, I, I, I can't even put a number on it. This, this is bigger than the internet. It's bigger than any technology that I've, I've seen in my two and a half decades of, of doing nothing but this 24-7, it feels like. So it's huge. Paul, for those who want to uh, track more of your thoughts and more of your work outside of X, outside of your huge YouTube channel, are there other sources that you can point people to? 
Our, our company is Rever Networks, which is just revernetworks.com. That's our consulting business. We work mostly in the blockchain space for big brands. That's also where our SaaS product lives in terms of all of our research and all of our data science over there. So yeah, that's the best place other than YouTube in, in here. Again, I encourage you, everybody here to uh, follow Paul uh, here on X and also on YouTube. Again, this will be an edited podcast probably in a couple of days. And appreciate everybody that's joined here. Paul, really enjoy the conversation. This is an area that I don't know anywhere near type of stuff that you know about in the weeds, but I found it very fascinating. So thank you for spending the time here. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.